This Saturday at noon, fourth-ranked Florida State visits Clemson. Walters is your spot for all FSU football games this fall. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Well, Davey Martinez coming out. Jackson Rutledge pitched a very, very well tonight. Certainly much better than his big league debut. His home debut is going to end after six and a third innings. Giving up just the two solo homers. And unfortunately, he's going to trail two to one. Rutledge is about to hand him the ball, but Davey wants to talk to him first. Pat him on the back. And then we'll make the call to the bullpen. So Rutledge is going to get a nice hand from the Nats Park crowd here for his home debut. He'll depart two to one. White Sox in front. Shaw fires. Swing a fly ball left field. Well struck. Back goes Benintendi to the track at the wall. And it's gone. Joey Manessis, a pinch hit. Three run homer. And the Nationals lead the ball game four to two. What a blast by Joey as the pinch hitter is 12th of the season. And the Nationals have the lead for the first time tonight. One, he was a lot calmer. <laughs> Two, uh, he attacked the strike zone. I mean, he really did. I mean, a good fastball today. Threw the ball well. And welcome to Nats Chat for Wednesday, September 20th, 2023, along with MassInSports.com Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman, who is at Nationals Park. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. The Nats, with the number 17 overall pick in the 2019 MLB draft, took starting pitcher Jackson Rutledge. The Nats, with the number 22 overall pick in the 2020 MLB draft took starting pitcher Cade Cavalli. Two guys who are key to this Nats rebuild. Two guys who were prominent in terms of Nats developments on Tuesday. Cavalli on Tuesday played catch for the first time since the Tommy John surgery that he underwent this past March. Told reporters that, quote, sometime in June, end quote, is a target for his major league return. And Rutledge on Tuesday night bounced back from his bad Major League debut. He allowed two runs in six into third innings in a 4-3 Nats win over the Chicago White Sox at Nationals Park in Game 2 of a three-game series, just the Nats' sixth win over the team's last 22 games. So the Nats for this season now are 67-85. and Mark, next season, a big season for both Cavalli and Rutledge. We'll see what comes of Cavalli and his recovery from Tommy John, but really nice to see Rutledge do as he did on Tuesday night. Yeah, obviously that was the most significant thing to happen in this game in a, a bigger picture standpoint. It was nice that Joey Manessas hit a three-run homer in the seventh to make sure that that start just wasn't completely wasted, but really big picture, that was so important to see him bounce back from what was a very ugly start in Pittsburgh last week, as we discussed, 
and just looked like a very confident, collected major league pitcher who was getting quick outs and went, I think, far deeper in the game than most of us would have assumed. And I think in a different scenario, would have been allowed to go even farther than he did. The pitch count was so low. I think you just got to a point that you said, well, it's a second major league start. Let's not push this too much and we'll pull him in the, in the seventh. I mean, he's the first Nationals rookie to make it into the seventh inning in his home debut since Steven Strasburg on that glorious night in 2010. Now, it tells you, as we've discussed, just how bad some of their pitching debuts have been in the 13 years since. But I don't care who you are. I don't care what the track record is. You pitch into the seventh inning in your second big league start, you're doing something right. And that was really nice to see. So that first big league start came last Wednesday evening. Jackson Rutledge uh, in that outing, what was a 7-6 loss at the Pittsburgh Pirates, seven runs in three and two-thirds innings. And one of the things we talked about was that, you know, you weren't facing uh, the 27 Yankees. You were facing a bad-hitting team in the Pirates and still got ripped like that. Well, Rutledge in this game on Tuesday night, this 4-3 win over the White Sox, like we said, two runs, six into third innings. He gave up six hits, two solo homers, a double, and three singles. He issued one walk. Did have just two strikeouts, but he threw a lot of strikes. 78 pitches, 53 strikes versus just 25 balls. He, per stat cast, had an average four-seam fastball velocity of 95.4 miles per hour. And Davey Martinez talked about this during his post-game press conference. Jackson Rutledge worked quickly. This game moved quickly. Jackson Rutledge was out there throwing strikes, seemed in rhythm, seemed confident. You know, it wasn't just what he did. It was how he did what he did that really jumped out. Yeah. What was funny is asked the same question. Jackson said in his mind, he actually felt like he was slowing it down. So that shows you just how fast he usually works. If in his mind, this was not that quick of a start because it sure was quick for all of us watching it. But that's who he is. And I think when he's at his best, it sounds like he is a quick out ground ball, get deep into the game kind of pitcher. Yeah. You only had a couple of strikeouts, but he was fine with that. He'll trade that off in exchange for the quick outs. And boy, After what we've seen from so many of the other national starters this year, who you get to the fourth inning, and it's a miracle if they've thrown fewer than 70 pitches, for him to get through the fourth on 51, I think, who knows if that's sustainable or not, but that's a really nice skill to have if he can do that. And it was a very just, it was a very pleasant outing to watch as opposed to so many others this year that we've watched have been so laborious. And you're thinking, well, you know, after one or two innings, this is not just going to be a long night for them. His first inning was actually his longest inning, 21 pitches. He was fantastic after that. And really, I think, set the tone for how you can go about doing this and get quick outs. So Jackson Rutledge looks like a strikeout pitcher. He's listed as being 6'8 and 251 pounds. If you look at his strikeout numbers in the minors, they weren't bad, but they certainly weren't overwhelming. I mean, Rutledge this season, 11 starts for AAA Rochester, strikeouts per nine innings of 7.82. He this season for AA Harrisburg, 12 starts, strikeouts per nine innings of 8.17. Do you know, do the Nats view him as a strikeout pitcher or is he going to be more of a, you know, Josiah Gray type getting some strikeouts, but not overwhelming you with the strikeout? I think when he was first drafted, the thought was he was more of a power pitcher or strikeout pitcher. And over time, I think he's developed into something different, which again, can be fine. I know you look physically imposing and and he's got a good fastball, as you just said, averaging 95. That doesn't mean you have to be all strikeouts though. And he said that like he would rather be the guy that goes deeper in games with a low pitch count than strike out a ton. 
So I think he's perfectly comfortable being this guy. I think they're comfortable with him being this guy if he can do that. Now, as we've discussed with many others, if you're not going to strike hitters out, you got to have pinpoint command. You got to stay down in the zone, avoid the loud contact. It's a tougher path to success, but it can be done. And I think he showed a way that you can do it in this game. Give up the two solo homers, but that's all that it was. He got a big double play ball. He got a runner thrown out on a stolen base, which was nice to see after what happened last week. And he just looked like he was comfortable and in control throughout. Now, you know, I don't want to read too much into this one, just like I don't want to read too much into the last one. We need a larger body of work here to to really have a sense of who he is. But it, it reminded me more of like a Jake Irvin kind of start that we've seen this year than anyone else. And if that's what he turns into, that's perfectly fine. I know it's a a big pedigree as a first round pick, but everybody develops differently. And if he can turn into a a guy who can give you innings and keep them relatively off the board and be consistent for you, I think that would be fantastic for them. So the Nats now are 152 into the 162, 10 regular season games left. Presumably Rutledge will make two more starts. How much is what he does over those two starts going to weigh in to where he begins next season, do you think? It may only be one start if they keep the six-man rotation. So, I mean, in theory, if they do that, it's game 158, and then that's it for him. Although we haven't heard their plans yet. I mean, they could still shut down Trevor Williams or give Josiah Gray more time. And we don't really know how they're going to do this yet. So one or two starts, I would say. I think it plays a role and how he fits into next year's plan. I think how he looks in spring training fits in as well. I think we also know how careful they are with workloads, innings pitched, protecting young guys, especially somebody who's had injuries before. So if the idea is what's more important, having him in the big leagues late in 2024 or at the beginning of 2024, my guess is they would prefer to have him there at the end of the season for them. But there's there's a lot of question mark about how exactly they're going to approach this this winter, whether they feel the need to go get somebody else that's a little more reliable or whether they're willing to go with a lot of young arms into spring training and potentially all of them plus Patrick Corbin and maybe Trevor Williams. I, I don't know. I'm not sure. I think what we've seen so far, Jake Irvin is going to be in the opening day rot- rotation if healthy. I think that's probably safe to say along with Gore and Gray. And then I think the question is you have Rutledge and Adone and then you have Corbin and Williams. Maybe one young guy and one old guy, depending on how it all works out. I don't think they go all young, not yet. I don't think they necessarily go both veterans unless it's clear that both Rutledge and Adone are not ready for it. Boy, if we have to choose between a second start for Jackson Rutledge before the end of this season in terms of two more starts or one more start or another Trevor Williams start. I mean, you know, please, okay? We don't need to see Trevor anymore, all right? I mean, God bless him. Nobody wishes anything bad on him, but like, come on. If we, if we got to choose between one or the other, like, who has the appetite for more Trevor Williams at this point? Like, give me a couple more Jackson Rutledge starts and, you know, let's see some more of what this guy can do. And if it happens, it's probably against the Braves, maybe even twice. If not, it's the Orioles. So it is going to be a real challenge for him. And maybe that's important to see how he does against those kind of lineups, even if it is kind of ugly, that at least gives you a better sense of where he's at going into the offseason. Absolutely. I mean, you know, look, if the Nats are going to be good again, they're going to have to deal with the Braves. Like, you can't avoid them, okay? Like, they are the standard of the division. You got to beat them. And so why not, you know, throw them into the pool and, and see how he does? So yeah, hopefully we do see a decent bit more of Jackson Rutledge as this season goes on. So with Cade Cavalli, 
I think the initial thing of, hey, he's at Nationals Park, he's playing catch today for the first time since Tommy John's surgery, all of that made you feel good. And then when he told you guys that he's targeting sometime in June for his major league return, I think that was kind of a uh, bucket of cold water poured on things. Just because, I mean, look, I don't think most people thought that he'd be ready to go for the beginning of next regular season. But maybe you're saying to yourself, all right, a few weeks into April, maybe May. He says sometime in June. And we know that players are usually overly optimistic. So if he's saying sometime in June, might that mean that we don't see him make his major league return until July? What did you think about that, him talking about June as the target for the major league return? A couple things there. Number one, I was surprised that he flat out said that, although he has been a guy since he's been up here that's like willing to say some things that maybe we don't always get from the organization when it comes to health updates. He did it last year when he had the shoulder issue. He is actually a little bit more forthcoming than most, which I'm not complaining about as a reporter. I love honesty. I think what he was conveying is not necessarily his hope, but what he's been told by the organization of how they're going to approach it. I was not surprised necessarily if that's what the ultimate answer is. I definitely got the sense that they are not targeting opening day, that they are looking at least into May, if not June of next year. June would be 14 months. So it's not like some outrageously long rehab. And I think the key to it all, as we've been saying, is making sure that once he comes back, they don't have to worry about his workload that much the rest of the way. Yeah, you're, you're not going to let him go deep in games. You're probably going to hold him to 80, 90 pitches, a lot of those earlier starts. But what you really want is for Cade Cavalli, a healthy Cade Cavalli, to give you, let's say, 20 starts next year, and that includes starts all the way through September. I think that is the goal to then set him up for 2025, which would be a first truly full big league season. So I think it's by design. I think if they really felt it was necessary, they could push him to try to be ready earlier than that. But I don't think the situation they're in demands that they do that. And so I do think they're going to be careful with it. But, you know, let's be clear. There's a lot of steps still to go. This was a big one. For him, emotionally, it was a big deal to get out there and play catch for the first time since the surgery. But timeline-wise, he's really only about halfway through the whole rehab process right now. He's made it through probably the hardest part mentally of having to just go to work every day down there in Florida and rehab without being able to pick up a baseball or do anything that's remotely baseball-related. Now he's finally doing that, and now that begins another six to eight months of building your arm up to the point where you can pitch in big league games. Again, the other thing to remember as far as the timing of this is he's going to have to make a bunch of minor league starts in advance. Spring training starts would not be enough to build him up to be ready to open the season. So some of that, I think, is allowing for time for him to pitch you know, every five, six days in the minor leagues next year as the completion of the whole rehab process. Well, it is funny how this stuff plays out. Like I said earlier, Jackson Rutledge, Nats first round pick 2019. Kate Cavalli, Nats first round pick 2020. Two guys who are starting pitchers, two guys for whom it has taken a little while longer than you would like for them to truly get going in terms of the major league careers. There are many reasons for that. And two guys who are really key to this rebuild. And so next season, really going to be interesting with what goes down with each guy. Hey, are you a law firm partner stuck on an underperforming team while the rest of the competitors are spending big and winning big? Well, unlike Mackenzie Gore and Capert Ruiz, you have options. You don't have to stay on your 60-win team. Nat's chat sponsor, Mason Kalfis, and his team 
specialize in placing partners and associates at medium-sized and large law firms in Washington, D.C. and across the country. Staying at a firm too long is often a recipe for being underpaid. Explore your options today with Mason Kalfas. Call Mason today at 202-486-3535. That number again, 202-486-3535. Heads up, Ted Lasso fans. Brett Goldstein, a.k.a. Roy Kent, is coming to DAR in mid-November. Head to the Game Time app for more info on how to land tickets. Game Time is the fast and easy way to buy tickets for all the sports, music, comedy, and theater near you. It's the fastest growing ticketing app in the country for a reason. Get images of your seat before you buy so you know exactly what to expect when you arrive. And listeners, download the GameTime app, create an account, and use code NATSCHAT for $20 off your first purchase. Terms apply. Again, create an account and redeem code NATSCHAT for $20 off. Download GameTime today. Last-minute tickets, lowest price, guaranteed. Hey guys, it's Al Galdi here to tell you about another great deal being offered right now by Window Nation to listeners of the Nats Chat Podcast. Window Nation is offering you even more. When it comes to new windows, Window Nation always gives you more, but now Window Nation is giving you even more, more. <laughs> the more windows that you buy, the more that you save up to 50% off, plus a lot more. Pay nothing for two full years. Another amazing deal on the great windows that Window Nation can provide to listeners of the Nats Chat Podcast. Save up to 50% with the purchase of a house of windows. You know, even given what has been happening with interest and mortgage rates, Window Nation still is keeping 0% interest for two years. Call 866-90-NATION or visit windownation.com. That's 866-90-NATION or windownation.com and tell Window Nation that you want the great deal that you heard about from Al Galdi on the Nats Chat Podcast. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Pitch to Thomas is hitting the air to left, chasing back Benatendi. He'll make the catch, but this is deep enough to score the tying run. Jacob Young will dash in with the game tying run. Sack fly and an RBI number 80 on the season for Thomas. Nationals won, White Sox won. Regarding this 4 3 Nats win over the White Sox on Tuesday night, so the Nats in this game got two key pinch hits, including a big pinch hit home run. 
The Nats for the game scored four runs, totaled seven hits, uh, worked two walks, went just one for 10 with runners in scoring position, but two of the seven hits were pinch hits. A three-run seventh for the Nats, Carter Keeboom, a pinch one-out single to center field on a one-two pitch, and Joey Manessis, a pinch two-out three-run home run to left field for a 4-2 Nats lead. This was just the Nats' second pinch hit home run this season. The other was by Michael Chavis, believe it or not. But good job, Joey Manessis. He now for this season is up to 84, runs batted in. That is uh, number one on the Nats. Kind of an odd game for the Nats offensively. Seven hits, like I said, two of them pinch hits, four of them extra base hits. The Nats in this game had the pinch hit three-run homer by Joey Manessis, had two triples and a double. So not what we're used to seeing, but what a job by Manessis to come through in that spot. It made all the difference because up to that point, or certainly through the first six innings of this game, this was an incredibly frustrating offensive performance by them. You get on the very first pitch of the game, a leadoff triple by C.J. Abrams, and then he never moves from there. You get a leadoff triple from Jacob Young in the sixth, and he did eventually score on Lane Thomas's sacrifice fly. But over that whole span, they were so swing happy. The number of times they were swinging at the first pitch and making an out, Lane Thomas first on that list, three of his four at-bats, he made an out on the first pitch. I don't know what was going on, why that was the case, but they were way too aggressive. This is a team that already has seen the fewest pitches per plate appearance this year in the major leagues. This is something that has to improve. We've talked about it countless times all summer long. You have these opposing starters who are getting into the fifth, the sixth innings with incredibly low pitch counts. And yeah, some of it's their performance, but some of it is this this inability to stay patient at the plate and try to work a good at bat. And so it was such a frustrating night up to that point. And then finally, they get to the White Sox bullpen in the seventh. And all of a sudden it was like, oh, okay, we can actually try to work the count here and have some good quality at bats. Vargas draws the walk. Very nice. Keyboom, really nice hit and run single. All of a sudden you're in position. And now Manessis comes up off the bench, and we've discussed this. I'm fully expecting, I don't know about you, I'm just waiting for that poke a line drive to right field, bring home the tying run, another great job by Joey Manessis. And instead, he finally gets a pitch he can turn on. He said the previous pitch was a cutter, about 95 miles an hour, and he was looking for that again. And instead, he got a slider that's a little slower. Because of it, his bat was out in front of it more. And so he recognized it, was able to turn on it, and drive the ball to left field. And boy, was that a nice thing to see both for Joey, because we know that as good as he's been, there haven't been enough of those kind of hits this year. But just for the team and for Rutledge to salvage a night that was looking so miserable at the plate up to that point. Home run number 12 for Joey Manessis on the season. And I mentioned the Nats having two triples in the game. So CJ Abrams had one of them. He is the Nats starting shortstop and number one batter, one for three with a triple and a walk. Abrams has been drawing some more walks lately, and this walk in this game was actually quite impressive. Bottom of the seventh, a two-out walk, despite having been down in the count at 1.02. But the triple came, as Mark said, bottom of the first, a leadoff first pitch triple to deep center field. This was not one of those triples that's a result of like a fielder misplaying the ball and the batter gets credit for the triple. Like, no, this was a legitimate triple. But yeah, the Nats did not score in that inning. And Jacob Young, he is an Nats starting center fielder and number nine batter, two for three with a triple and a double. He and an Nats, one run six, had a leadoff triple to the left center field gap on a one-two pitch. And Young, in the bottom of the seventh, a two-out opposite field double to the right center field gap. We have not talked much about this this season because there have been uh, maybe some other things uh, to get into with the Nats, but 
Davey Martinez has continued to do this thing of you bat the guy in the nine spot who's like your pseudo number two leadoff batter. And we've seen that with Jacob Young. And it, it was funny to me when Abrams uh, had a, a day off recently, Young was the number one batter. And it's just odd. Like, if you think enough of a guy to be your number one batter when your usual number one batter is out, why do you continually bat that guy in the nine spot and cost him plate appearances? It's not that Jacob Young has torn it up, but he has been pretty good and his speed has been exciting. And, you know, we saw him have a triple and a double on Tuesday night. You know, we've seen this with Davey for a few seasons. It's not exclusive to him. Other managers do do this, but it's just strange to me that this this thing of like you get the back-to-back leadoff types, but in doing that, you bury the guy in the nine spot and you cost him plate appearances. Like if you like him as a batter, don't you want to get him more plate appearances? I, I've never understood why Davey is uh, a fan of this approach. Yeah, I think it's probably, you think about the guys that he does that with, Jacob Young, Victor Robles, has done it a lot. I think it's probably a not a full confidence in them that they are complete as a hitter enough to say, yeah, you're a leadoff guy, you're a number two guy in the big leagues. Maybe they get there, as we saw with C.J. Abrams, worked his way up there. It would have been interesting to see if Robles had stayed healthy and kept producing the way that he was, would he have moved up in the order or not? So I think that's partly that. I think it's also, the idea is like, it's all about the first inning. And making sure that your three best hitters are up that inning, that you want Abrams to set the table and then have Thomas, then either Ruiz or Manessas behind them and try to score early, where a more inexperienced hitter like Young, are you going to go Young, Abrams, Thomas? It feels like it requires a little more manufacturing to score that first run. I get what you're saying, and I, I don't necessarily think you're wrong. I think it just requires somebody like Jacob Young establishing himself a little bit more and maybe changing the mindset of what you're really looking for in the first inning of a game. If they have a good deep lineup, I think a number nine hitter like that's really valuable, a second leadoff hitter, quote unquote. But when you don't have a deep lineup and yeah, your top three, you may want up there, but then you're going Dom Smith, Ildemaro Vargas, Luis Garcia, four, five, six. That's where I think it gets into what you're talking about because Jacob Young deserves as many, if not more plate appearances than some of those guys do. Yeah. And to be clear, my point isn't that Jacob Young should be batting second or third. My point is Jacob Young should be batting, I don't know, sixth or seventh. I mean, not ninth. Why isn't he batting ahead of Blake Rutherford, who's back at the major league level and was batting eighth on Tuesday night? Why isn't Young batting ahead of, you know, Ildemaro Vargas or even Drew Millis? Like, if you like him, get him up there. Like, each spot in the order over the course of a season is worth, I think it's something like 14 or 17 plate appearances over the course of a year. So, it may not sound like much batting ninth instead of eighth or batting ninth instead of seventh, but over the course of 162 games, that's actually a decent chunk of plate appearances. And, you know, we're talking about just a few months of Jacob Young, understand that. But I just think like conceptually, this has always been a flawed approach to me, this idea that like, well, we like the guy, but let's bat him ninth because then he and the number one guy will come up in succession later in the game. It's like, okay, but first of all, that might not even happen. Okay. Like, you know, you can't be certain of that. But second of all, you're costing that guy played appearances. But anyway, good to see uh, Jacob Young with a triple and a double in this game. Like I said, Blake Rutherford is back. You know, I was wondering why we had not seen much of uh, Travis Blankenhorn lately. Now we know the Nats on uh, Tuesday afternoon put him on the 10-day injured list, uh, retroactive to Saturday with plantar fasciitis and recalled Blake Rutherford from AAA Rochester. Well, if there was a negative for the Nats in this 4-3 win over the White Sox on Tuesday night, it was Kyle Finnegan struggling again. He is not in a good place right now. So 
In this game, three Nats relievers combined to allow one run in two and two-thirds innings. Robert Garcia is in a good place right now. Top of the seventh, he faced two batters, got two outs. Hunter Harvey tossed a perfect top of the eighth. But Kyle Finnegan in the top of the ninth, the latter run, did get the save, but he gave up a leadoff double by Luis Robert Jr. off the left center field warning track, gave up a one-out RBI single by Yohan Moncada up the middle on an 0-2 pitch to cut the Nats' lead to 4-3 and issued a two-out five-pitch walk of Trace Thompson. Kyle Finnegan this season at times has been outstanding, and he not that long ago was in the midst of an outstanding run. But you look at Kyle Finnegan now, he's allowed at least one earned run in eight of his last 13 appearances. He, in this month of September, has allowed eight earned runs in seven and two-thirds innings, and it's not like he has been overworked or used a ton here lately. He is not ending his season in a very good way. No, he's in a bad place right now, and it's unfortunate because it really was shaping up to be an outstanding year for him. And you look at that stretch where the team was going so well in July and August, he was a huge part of that. All those one-run wins, he was locking down those games at a time when Hunter Harvey wasn't back yet from his injuries. So I think some of this may just be a long season and the workload maybe catching up to him finally. I know he's not pitched as much lately. Like you said, he had the week off very recently and came back and still struggled after that. But I just kind of believe that he's worn down. And now we saw this happen to him a couple of years ago. I think in 21, he had a bad September that kind of spoiled what was shaping up to be a good year as well for him. The thing is this, in the long run, if Kyle Finnegan's going to be a big part of the back end of a bullpen on a team that's winning, he's going to have to be able to sustain success through September and then for another month beyond that. Now, he's a strong guy. I don't think he's ever really dealt with any kind of injuries of any consequence. So it's not like there's anything there. But I do wonder if he's just somebody who ultimately will perform better if he makes 50 appearances a year instead of 65. Now, I don't know how you manage that down the road, but it does seem notable that he's really kind of limping into the finish line here. I mean, he's got a 366 ERA now. And I know ERA is not everything with relievers, but that's not anywhere close to elite. Nowhere close to where he was not that long ago. It's a tricky deal with Finnegan because he is talented and there isn't a lot of like major league mileage on his arm, but he is an older guy. I think people who don't know this get surprised by this. This is his age 31 season. He's not someone in his early or mid-20s. He's not at the same point in terms of his numerical age as, you know, say, someone like Hunter Harvey. And so it's hard to know what exactly to make of him in terms of the long haul. Like you would think, all right, a reliever in his age 31 season on a rebuilding club, like by the time the team gets good, is he really going to be your closer? But then again, we do see older relievers have success. And, you know, it's not like 31 is 39. Like, you know, him being good two years from now isn't that inconceivable. But I don't know. With him, I think like with a lot of guys on the Nats, it's like on a better team, he would not be in the position that he's in. He'd be in a lesser spot, and that would probably suit him better on this team. He's kind of overslotted. You know, like he's he's not, I don't think he's a closer or an ace reliever on a good team. I think he could be a piece of a good bullpen, but I do think that we see him get exposed. We've seen this the last few years. He can be good, but that consistency just has not been there. Right. And even right now, even the outs are loud. That final out of the game was scorched off the bat. It just happened to be right at Lane Thomas in right field. So it is pretty shaky right now. I did notice, I think, discussed the other day about how when he gave up that grand slam in Milwaukee, maybe becoming a little too predictable as a two-pitch guy, fastball 
and splitter. He did break out the slider for the first time in a while that I've seen from him in this game and had some good ones. So maybe that's a sign of him understanding he needs to adapt a little bit, make some changes. I don't, we'll see. I think if you're Davey Martinez, you probably at this point want to try to minimize the workload if you can down the stretch. I wonder if Hunter Harvey might get a ninth inning here at some point. He's been very good since coming back from the IL. But you, you look at those two guys side by side and... At this stage, Hunter Harvey has a significantly lower ERA. He has a significantly lower whip. He has more strikeouts across 10 fewer appearances. Hunter Harvey has actually been the more consistently effective reliever for them. Now, he was hurt for a while, and that cost them. And that's always the concern with him. And Finnegan, for about you know a good three to four month stretch, was just lights out. But the start to his season and now the end of his season are really kind of changing the way we may view this altogether. So game three of this series is an afternoon game on Wednesday afternoon. It will be the Nats and the White Sox at 105, and it will be a Josiah Gray start. And raise your hand if you have complete certainty regarding what we will see from Josiah Gray on Wednesday afternoon. He had been in a real rut, bad in five of six starts. We had what happened in a 6-4 loss to the Miami Marlins at Nationals Park on September 3rd, him lasting for just four innings, three runs in the four innings. But then in his most recent outing, he was good, made a start for the first time in 11 days and was good for just the second time in seven starts, a 2-0 loss at the Pittsburgh Pirates on uh, Thursday afternoon, September 14th, two runs, six into third innings, 10 strikeouts, versus no walks. And it wasn't just 10 strikeouts versus no walks. He threw a ton of strikes. This was like the exact opposite of what we had been seeing from Josiah Gray. He, in that game, over 88 pitches threw 62 strikes versus 26 balls. Now, yes, Pirates, not a very good hitting team, but also, yes, Gray had not been pitching very well. So I don't know what to expect from him in this game against the White Sox. I do know that he really could use another good outing here And the White Sox certainly would seem to be a team against which Josiah Gray could have another very good outing. He could. They do have a couple of big boppers in the middle of the lineup that would concern me with home runs. Robert Jimenez and Moncada, three, four, five, can be pretty tough for him. But I agree. I don't know what to expect for sure. I could see it going in either direction. I think the Nationals are just going start to start with him. If he had a really bad one, maybe they decide, okay, that's enough. Let's call it off for the rest of the way. If he has another good one, they say, okay, let's give him one more. I think psychologically, it would make a big difference for him to finish strong with a few good starts. It would send him to the offseason feeling much better about his season, which, you know, it's an it was an all-star season for him. And the first half was really good and a lot of good progress that was made. The second half reverting back to a lot of the problems that we saw from him last year. I don't know how we'll ultimately view this, but I feel like Another one or two quality starts could help shape the narrative of the 2023 season for Josiah Gray and help the Nationals as they approach the offseason with their rotation and as they try to decide, okay, how is this all stacking up next year? Who are the guys we're really counting on? Is it Gore? Is it Gray? Are we still feeling like Corbin has to be the leader of the staff because he's the veteran and these other guys are still so inconsistent? I, I think there's a lot still to be determined here in these last 10 games. You tell us what you think. Hit us up on Twitter at Nats underscore chat. You can email the show NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com, including if you would like to sponsor the program this season, next season, uh, hit up Tim Schober, see what we can do for you. Nats Chat Podcast 
at gmail.com. We have a website that we invite you to check out too, natschatpodcast.com. And don't forget about the second annual Nats Chat Podcast Party at Walters, Friday evening, October 13th at 6.30. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. And thank you to Tim Newmark for the Nats Chat Podcast music. Visit timnewmark.com. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. I mean, I think the big thing of uh, this year or this game compared to last was that I had I had pitched in the last like ten days. Um, obviously, last time out it was kind of tough, uh, skipping a start and then and then coming into it. Um, this time I just felt more in a routine. I was able to you know start getting in a in a real solid routine with with all the the trainers and all the staff here. Um, definitely helped and um, just felt really comfortable out there. Felt like my team had my back and uh, obviously familiarity with Millis is great. Felt good, felt confident, and um, went out there and just did what I was going to do. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.